I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. That's page 486 in your pew Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And um, we are in a series in which we're actually looking primarily at the text from Matthew where he begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. As we have said, sort of uh, the resume for Jesus and the fact that he is worthy to be our our king. That genealogy is... um, Contain, or is contained in the first 17 verses of, of Matthew chapter 1, and I'd just like to read a couple of verses from that uh, chapter now. I'll begin with verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And then um, just to go down to verse 15... We get the completion of that genealogy. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And now we'll look at uh, 2 Samuel 11, and I'll read uh, selected verses there. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and David or and, and sent word to David saying I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. 
Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So you see what's happening here, right? The cover-up did not work, and so David makes the decision to have Uriah killed. Then if you uh, look down to the end of the chapter, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if you want to continue to read the rest of that story, you can go on to 2 Samuel 12 a little later today. Um, interesting to see how the Lord handles that situation. Friends, in in Jesus Christ, when George W. Bush became president, I still remember some of the questions quite plainly. Will he be as good as his father? Bronny James, the son of, of LeBron James, faces questions similar uh, regarding basketball. How will he compare to his dad? And then there's maybe Andy Stanley who heard those same kind of questions. Will he preach like his dad, Charles? In sports, in politics, in business, in religion, whatever it is, when mom or dad is a superstar, we always want to know what the next generation will do and how they will compare. How is the next generation going to compare? That same question arises right here in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his gospel this way, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. David. David is the very first father mentioned in Matthew 1, and that's because David was a superstar as far as kings go. David stood head and shoulders above all of the other kings of Israel. In terms of what we talked about last week, it was David who finally provided rest for God's people. It was David who unified the tribes. It was David who quelled the Philistine threat. It was David who consolidated his government in Jerusalem. David was a superstar. David had the hands of a warrior combined with the heart of a shepherd. A heart after God's very own heart, we read later. David was a superstar, which raises the natural question, how will Jesus compare to his dad? How will Jesus compare? I think we get 
that answer, or Matthew's answer, just a little further down in that genealogy. The verse we read today, Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose wife, or whose mother, excuse me, was the wife of Uriah. Now we've talked about how unique it is even to find the names of women in ancient genealogies, but but here we find another peculiarity, and that is that this woman that we read of today doesn't even have a name. She's simply Uriah's wife, which is less a name and, and more perhaps a story. And, and I think it's that story that Matthew wants us to recall here at this time. It's a story that Matthew's bringing to mind because it's a story that tells us that while David may have been great, even the greatest perhaps of all the kings of Israel, even a man after God's very own heart, while David may have been great, David was far from perfect. If you listen closely to our text, you got that same message. What's the very first thing we read about David in 2 Samuel 11? If you still have your Bibles open, take a look. David sent Joab out with the king's men, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, I think the author is being very intentional there. And I think what he wants us to recall is the time that Israel came to the prophet Samuel pestering him for a king. That's 1 Samuel 8, if you want to read the story. But what Samuel basically says there, or what the people say to him is, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all of the other nations, they said, with a king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. But what is it that we find David doing in our text? Is he, is he leading the army into battle? Is he going out before them to engage the enemy? No. He's hanging back in Jerusalem, watching reruns of MASH. What's the message? Well, the message is that, that David is a good king, perhaps even a great king. But David was not perfect. Think again of that same conversation with Samuel in that same chapter. And you sort of have to imagine here, I think, Samuel um, here as a parent trying to warn his teenage daughter who wants to start dating boys. And this is what, this is what Samuel says. He says, let me tell you people what kings are like. Your kings are going to take. Your kings are going to take your sons and make them serve in their armies. And your kings are going to take your daughters and make them slaves in their palaces. <clears throat> and kings are going to take your crops and the work of your hands, and they're going to call them taxes. In other words, kings are takers. Kings are takers. Don't say I didn't warn you. Now look at verse 4 of our text. <clears throat> there are there are three verbs here that come in very quick succession which describe what David did with Bathsheba. 
They say David sent, David took, and David lay. He sent, he took, and he lay. David was a taker, just like Samuel said. And what's the message? Well, the message is that David was a good king. David maybe was even the best king. But David was far from perfect. Now look at the text that introduces us to Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. David inquires as to the identity of of this generic woman that he has seen on a rooftop, a beautiful woman that he saw bathing. And the response comes back, and it comes back full of boundaries and full of those blinking red lights that appear on your dashboard. Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, Now, this is the same kind of answer that a counselor might give you if you go to talk someone about your struggle with pornography. And she might tell you, those aren't just images that you're looking at. Those are not just objects. Those are people. And those people, those people have names, and they have relationships, and they have stories attached to them. That could be your niece. That could be your nephew. That could be your daughter one day. And counselors will do this. They'll give us names and people. They'll try to make us understand that these are people because they understand that real people are harder to abuse than objects. And that's what David's messengers are trying to do here in this chapter. They're trying to rehumanize Bathsheba in David's eyes. David, they say, this isn't just an object up on a rooftop. This is a person, David. And she has a name. This is someone's daughter, David. This is someone's wife. She is off limits, David. And a good shepherd would know this. But David ignores the boundaries, doesn't he? And the king who provided rest for so much of Israel, here he ushers a few, just a few, but he ushers them right back into the days of the judges. The chaos of the judges, the time of the judges when Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, David was a good king, maybe one of the best, but he was far from perfect. David provided rest for most people, but not for everyone. And that's the indictment here, friends. You find it in Samuel, you find it here in Matthew. David had a shepherd's heart but not the shepherd's heart. The good shepherd knows his sheep. The good shepherd calls them each by name. The good shepherd leaves the 99 in the fold and he goes out to the hills to find the one who is lost and he doesn't rest until he finds her. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. David may have been carrying the shepherd's staff, even sitting on the shepherd's throne, but David was not the good shepherd. Just ask Uriah about that. Uriah wasn't just any old soldier. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. If you read those stories, you may recall that Uriah was one of the elite. He was a green beret. But when you, when you use that name, David's mighty men, you have to understand that the emphasis is not on the word mighty. It's on, it's on David's. These were David's mighty men. These were men who had pledged their lives to David. They had been with him through thick and thin. They were there from the beginning at his side when David was still a nobody. They were like Robin Hood's band of merry men. Secret service agents pledged to give their lives for the president. And Uriah himself was even a foreigner. He was a Hittite. And so somewhere along the line, he had made the conscious decision to throw his lot in with David and with David's God. At some point, Uriah had said, Me too. I want in. And he climbed into Abraham's minivan and he sat down right next to Ruth and Rahab and Tamar and he closed the door and he said, I'm staying. I'm in. Uriah was committed. Uriah was loyal. He was the kind of man that if you were going to journey into Mordor's Mount Doom, you would want Uriah at your side. Good old Sam Gamgee had nothing on Uriah. And yet, when Uriah turned his back, David slipped a knife between his ribs. But don't forget to ask Bathsheba either about David. Bathsheba was a victim. There's no other way to put it. If Bathsheba were alive today, she would have the right to be right at the front of the line in the Me Too movement. She was a victim of David's abuse of power. Now, I understand there are always those who want to protect the reputation of God's saints, and I get that. And in this instance, what happens is we try to paint Bathsheba as some sort of seductress, some sort of temptress. I mean, what was she doing up there on that rooftop anyway? We try to, to lay all the fault right at the feet of Bathsheba. But the truth is, friends, that David was a king. And if you think your boss has clout over your life and your future, that is nothing, nothing compared to a king. If Bathsheba had told David to buzz off, to mind his own business, 
that most likely would have been the end of her life. Kings were answerable to no one. No one. Except in Israel, where they were answerable to God. But David wasn't answering God right now. And if you're still not convinced, then all you need to do is read the last line of our text again. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Displeased the Lord. And even that line, friends, is airbrushed because the Hebrew coldly reads, the thing David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It was evil. That was God's verdict. That's not my verdict. That's not the verdict of some human court. That was God's verdict. In his eyes, what David did was just plain evil. He took advantage of someone because he could. Because he was the king. See, friends, I think sometimes we, we want to relegate David's sin too quickly to that folder of, of personal sin. And we want to remove it from the folder of social sin. We put it in the box of, of Psalm 51, right, where David pens that wonderful poem of confession and he says, against you, you only have I sinned, O God, and done what is evil in your sight. In other words, we perceive that David's sin was just between him and God. That's not the case. It's not the case at all. In Psalm 51, David is saying that ultimately, preeminently, I have sinned against you, O God. But ultimately, all of our sins are against God. All of our sins are against Him. But that doesn't mean that we do not sin against each other and do incredible damage in one another's lives. It doesn't mean that we do not ruin God's shalom within families and churches and communities. When a priest or a pastor abuses a child, that sin is ultimately against God, yes, but it's also against that child. And it's against that child's family. And it causes huge amounts of pain and destruction and the vandalism of shalom in entire lives and communities. David even acknowledged that himself in Psalm 51 when he pleads, Save me from blood guilt, O God. God, I've got blood on my hands, he cries. And it has destroyed lives. I have decimated families. I have brought chaos where God ordained that there should be shalom. You see, we cannot forget here, what we cannot forget is that David holds office in Israel. You cannot forget David's office. This is not your next-door neighbor, David the painter, that this story is about. It's about David the king. And David holds an office in the government of God. 
And it was David's responsibility to mediate the shalom of God to all of God's people, not just to some, not just to those he liked and to those who did him favors and to those who contributed to his election campaign. David was to provide a safe place for all of God's people to live. He was to provide good roads and reliable utilities and solid schools. David was or that was David's covenant with God himself. He was supposed to provide rest for all of God's people, each and every one, to the best of his ability. And so what he does to Bathsheba here, and what he does to Uriah, it's not just a sin, it's an abuse of office. It's like, it's like when your city council person is in cahoots with the factory down the street that's contaminating your drinking water. It comes off not just as one person who has a personal, uh, bit, who has a personal trouble with you, right? It comes off as if the whole city is against you. The whole government of the city is against you. The people who are supposed to be protecting you are against you. And that's what's going on here with David. David is supposed to be Bathsheba's protector, like God is Bathsheba's protector. And so, friends, don't feel anything less than the full force of those last words in our text. This thing that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was evil because it comes off not just as David has done something to me, not just as David has betrayed me, but it comes off as if God himself has betrayed me. That's how Uriah and Bathsheba feel. As if God has betrayed us. And friends, God is the husband of widows. And he is the father to orphans. He is not the creator of widows. Or the manufacturer of orphans. But that's what David's sin made God out to be. Friends, in God's mind, people like Uriah and Bathsheba are just as important as kings and nobles and senators and pastors and stockbrokers. God wants his kings to have the very same mind in them that he has. And in this way, David fell short. David did not have the fullness of God's mind in him. David may have been good. David may have been the best. But David was far from perfect. So what was God's answer? Well, when you look down a few more verses in Matthew, you see it. Another anomaly in a genealogy that seems stocked with them. Abraham was the father of Isaac, it begins. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. And on and on and on it goes until you get to the last verse we read this morning, and it says, And Joseph was the father of Jesus. Only it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. It says that Joseph was the husband of Mary. 
of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the King. In other words, Matthew is making it clear to us that Jesus was not the literal son of Joseph. And likewise, Jesus was not the literal son of David. Because God wanted a king who would do more than walk in his father's footsteps. God wanted a king who would walk in God's footsteps. He wanted not just a shepherd king, but a king who would be the good shepherd. And so God gave us a king who was not just the son of David, but God gave us a king who was also the son of Uriah, and he was the son of Bathsheba. If Jesus, you see, was to save the Uriahs and the Bathshebas of the world, then Jesus had to walk in their footsteps too. And so Jesus came as the son of Uriah. He came as one who was loyal. So loyal. He came as one who was so loyal to God and so loyal to God's sheep that he did not waver from his duty ever. And as he was fulfilling that duty, he was betrayed by his own. His own disciples scattered in every direction. His own people traded his life for that of a common criminal. His dear friend said, I don't know the man. Jesus was betrayed by the very people that he loved the most and he came to save. They slipped the knife between his ribs when he turned his back. Jesus was the son of Uriah. And Jesus was the son of Bathsheba. You know, a little earlier in the service, we sang that, that Christmas hymn, O come, all ye faithful. And there's a line in the second verse. We didn't sing it this morning, but the line goes like this. Lo, he abhorred not the virgin's womb. He abhorred not the virgin's womb. It's that word abhorred that always hits me. Most of us are abhorred, you know, by the idea of paying property taxes. Giving up just a little piece of, of what is ours. Becoming just a little more vulnerable to the world around us, even if it's just financially. We abhor that idea. The idea of vulnerability. And yet Jesus, the one who slung the planets and the stars into space, he was not repulsed. He was not abhorred at all at the prospect of becoming utterly and completely vulnerable. Becoming a zygote, a fetus. He abhorred not the virgin's womb. And it didn't end there. The humiliation, that is. It didn't end there. It didn't end there because the very word of God, can you imagine, sat through 
catechism class after catechism class and rabbis with only a fumbling understanding of God's character and His Word, perhaps punishing Him for challenging their views. Humiliation as He healed people He loved and as He cast out demons and as He gave signs that the good kingdom of God was near and yet He was dismissed because, well, no Son of God would heal on the Sabbath. We know this. Humiliation as the tenants of his father's vineyard used their power and their offices to shut up the son when he came to collect the father's harvest. Jesus was the son of Bathsheba. He was a victim of Herod's power and Caesar's power and Pilate's power and the power of the chief priests and the rulers and the teachers of the law. He was powerless. He came powerless. He was Bathsheba's son. This is the king that God sent to us, his people, to rule over us and to redeem us. The one appointed by God to wield God's sword, to wield His power, to give all of His people rest, is the very one who also felt the sword of man's power slipped between His ribs. And thus we have a Savior who came not only for kings and for governors and David and Solomon, but one who came for all those that the world overlooks and kicks to the side. He came for people like Uriah and his wife. We too have a Savior. And Matthew makes sure that we know it. And so friends, if you know what it's like to be Uriah, and if you know what it's like to be Bathsheba, if you know what it's like not to trust anyone, And Matthew wants you to know that you can trust Jesus. And I hope you will. Let's bow together in prayer. Jesus, we don't think of it enough. As we so proudly proclaim that you were the son of David, the son of Abraham, we often forget that you were also the son of Uriah and the son of Uriah's wife, a son of the nameless ones, a son of the helpless ones, the powerless ones, abused by the powers of this earth. That's who you were. You too were abused by the powers of this earth. You became vulnerable for us. You suffered our sufferings. You walked in our shoes. And it's this same Jesus who invites us to this table this morning and invites all the Uriahs, the Bathshebas, all the Davids who need a Savior to come. 
and join you at your table forevermore. Lord, may today's feast be a taste of the feast that one day, by the grace of our God and the work of Jesus Christ, we shall enjoy in your kingdom forever. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.